Hey everyone, it's Caleb. And today I am so excited for you uh, to be listening to the podcast because today I am talking with Jamar Tisby. And if you're not familiar with Jamar, I want to tell you a little bit about him in just a second. Uh, but and I, actually, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him first. Uh, so Jamar has written two books that, uh, and I'm, I'll tell you a little bit more, but he's written two books uh, that has, has greatly uh, shaped me in terms of me wanting to learn more about uh, the, the history of race throughout our country, um, how the church's relationship, the Capital City Church's relationship with race. He's, uh, his two books are How to Fight Racism and uh, the, Comprom- the Color of Compromise, which I'll get into that a little bit more um, you know, as I introduce him further. Before that, I do want to give a couple of quick thank yous to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast, and Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast. You know, here on the Learner's Corner, uh, if this happens to be your first time, you know, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because, you know, you've probably gone through life enough and have realized that you can't talk with anybody about any or about just any subject because, you know, you know that for certain subjects, for for different people, you're going to get a very strong, uh, often emotional reaction to certain topics. And one of those topics that often elicits a lot of strong emotions in people is that of racism on many different angles of things. And sometimes that it can make, uh, it can be really difficult to have productive conversations around these topics. And especially, um, I don't, I don't know if about especially, but you know, uh, I was getting ready to say especially again, but, uh, in the last year or so, particularly since, uh, George Floyd was tragically murdered. And I mean, uh, it's not just George Floyd, but it's with Breonna Ter- Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and uh, just all of the all of the senseless killings that have happened over the past, you know, several years as well. It has just seemed to make these conversations even more, even more difficult to happen. And that's why I'm so excited to be talking with Jamar today, because even if you feel like, hey, I can't have these conversations or I'm not sure who I can have these conversations with, maybe you could just listen in on Jamar and I's conversation, because we truly believe here on The Learner's Corner that we can learn from anyone and everyone and that we can talk about anything and everything. And Jamar is somebody that I've really been, that I have been learning from for a long time. And I'm excited to introduce you to him, or if you already uh, have read several of his books or even listened to uh, his podcast, um, The Witness, I'm excited for you to hear our conversation today. But before we jump into that, I want to give you a little bit more background on Jamar and tell you about him. So Jamar is the president of The Witness, which is a black Christian collective where he writes about race, religion, politics, and culture. He is also the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. He has spoken nationwide at conferences, and his writing has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and CNN. He is studying for a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi with a focus on race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. And as I mentioned earlier, he has released two books, which have um, been some of the best books that I've read here in the last couple of years. The first one is called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About Amer- the American Church's Complicity and Racism. And his most recent book, which just came out at the beginning of the year, is called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Jamar Tisby. Well, Jamar, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about your brand new book, How to Fight Racism. Thank you for having me, the Learner's Corner. I like that name. Yeah. And and just as we get started, anytime that I've I talk with someone who has either, you know, wrote a book or in your case, started an organization like The Witness, I love hearing the story or the series of events that led someone to go, hey, I I need to do that. I need to do something about this. I need to start this organization, write this book. And so I would just love to hear 
that for you as it pertains to the witness and maybe even how it, it relates to your book, How to Fight Racism, as well? So what became The Witness originally started as the Reformed African American Network, and that was fall 2011. I was in seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary, and what I was trying to do was carve out a space for Black people, and in particular, uh, the topics and priorities that were pertinent to us. Excuse me. Everything from racism to criminal justice reform to, you know, uh, expanding our dialogue and vocabulary around theology and and who gets to contribute, whose voices are heard. Now, along the way, we experienced a lot of stuff nationally uh, regarding race. So 2012, you had the murder of Trayvon Martin. 2013 was his acquittal when Black Lives Matter uh, was uh, first put together by um, three black women. And then 2014, you have the killing of Mike Brown, and then Black Lives Matter becomes a national movement. June 2015, you have Trump announcing his candidacy for the Republican candidate for president, and then that whole presidential election cycle. But you also got things like um, Eric Garner and Philando Castile and the Unite the Right rally and Manual 9. So anyway... All of that stuff put race and racism in the midst of conversation like I had never experienced before. And it also brought out the trolls, brought out the racists, and unfortunately, a lot of them were Christian. So what began as, hey, how do we carve out space at this table, uh, eventually evolved into how do we build our own tables. And so in uh, 2017, we changed the name, refined the focus. And we are the witness incorporated. Uh, we have two divisions, a black Christian collective, and our newest division is the witness found, uh, foundation. And so uh, what we're trying to do now is to uh, focus on black uplift from a Christian perspective. And we do that in a variety of ways. But, but what we're trying to do is talk about the expansive Black Christian experience uh, from the perspective of pretty much millennials and younger, but definitely gleaning from wisdom from from all kinds of sources. Mm-hmm. And you, you had mentioned like some of the backlash that you had gotten whenever you started talking about this, particularly whenever it comes to, you know, the witness and everything. Like, tell me, tell me what that was like for you whenever it's like, especially whenever it's from Christians, people yes. who were supposed to be on, like, we're supposed to be on the same team, yeah. And they're calling you out, spew like hate. What, yep. what did that feel like? What was that like? Well, there was. Um, so I was I was heavily involved in uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a Southern Presbyterian denomination. I remember going to this one church in Mississippi and giving a message on racial justice, that kind of a theme. Afterwards, this. Uh, tall white guy. And I mentioned his height because he used his physical presence to try to intimidate me. He got real, real close, way up in my personal space, kind of leaned over me and was like shaking mad. And he said, you didn't mention the gospel at all. And first of all, I was like, uh, step off, you know, kind of a, a, of a response. But, um, it was one of those moments that was so clarifying to me. Number one, the physical threat and danger that this kind of conversation evokes. And let me give a sidebar here. For folks who are inviting people, black people, people of color, to talk about race, um, it is such an emotionally charged topic, especially for white people who, who more often respond with aggressiveness. Um, you got to protect these speakers. When when we get back to the point where we're doing you know events in person, do not ever leave a speaker alone, whether walking to the venue or from the venue, and especially right after they speak. That's when the 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 most sort of heinous kind of comments and actions come about. So that's just a bonus. Um, this work is hazardous. And by the way, there should be some sort of hazard pay incorporated in this, right? 
this is not the same as inviting a speaker to come talk about like dating <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, discipleship in general. This is a highly fraught topic. So that's just the bonus because I think your audience is important. But, yeah. um, you know, that was just one instance of many. And, and, and it actually illustrates another point. Martin Luther King Jr. said, um, you know, in the end, we won't remember um, the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And so it was really striking to me because after that sermon, when this man came up just so enraged, uh, the pastor of the church wasn't more than five or six feet away, if that. A, he totally missed the exchange. He had left me and uh, was in his own conversation. And B, um, because he wasn't there, he had nothing to say. So it was, you know, sort of like the, the, the guy who was enraged was one thing, but the fact that the person who invited me or the people of goodwill didn't speak up, that's even worse in a sense, right? Cause you can expect the pushback, but it is always, always feels like a sense of betrayal when, you know, the people who you thought were your allies, end up shrinking back in the moment of adversity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had, you had mentioned that, you know, race can be such a, such an emotionally charged topic. Any thoughts on what makes that so? Well, living in the South um, and getting to know white people in the South, especially it's a family affair. So, um, and you see these signs, which are totally off base, but but they they are illustrative. Heritage, not hate. Usually, you see those signs in defense of flying the Confederate battle flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've learned from white folk in the South is, when you're talking about racists, especially say like during the Civil Rights Movement, or even in the um, more recent past, the '80s maybe, uh, during the rise of the religious right, you're talking about uncles, grandfathers, you talk about mamma and papa, you talk about cousins. Um, it's within the family. It's very personal in a way that is typically not with black people and people of color in the sense that you have those racists in your family and you know them not simply or purely as racist, but as you know, family members or very good friends. So I think it evokes a response because it is so very personal. And, and when you say, hey, this is part of your upbringing, this was some of the bad teaching that you inherited, you're, you're, you're calling into question a, a person's entire identity, a person's entire social network. Uh, the heritage not hate part um, speaks to the idea that to the extent white people recognize the culture they have, it is absolutely wrapped up in racism and white supremacy. And so to point that out is to, for some people, feel a sense of aggrievement or uh, being attacked for their entire sort of history. But the unfortunate truth is, that's the reality. Like all that good, all those good associations you may have with individuals or the people in your social network or um, your history and your culture, I'm sorry, it's tied up with racism and white supremacy and you gotta deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there are a bunch of, bunch of folks who refuse to do so. And I think those are the ones who get the most angry. Yeah. Well, one of the things uh, that I caught just reading the book is you mentioned your experience as a middle school principal. And I've, I would just love to ask, how did your, or how has your time as a middle school principal shaped who you are today and your work at The Witness and how it's prepared you for the work that you're doing right now? I definitely learned more than I ever taught. <laughs> my first career was uh, as an educator. When I, when I was uh, in undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, I majored in American studies and absolutely loved it. Uh, but, you know, graduation is looming. I'm like, um, what on earth can I do <laughs> with this degree? And uh, I said, well, I have a lot of education. Maybe I can teach. So I uh, applied and got accepted to Teach for America. And that's how I got from in the Mississippi to Arkansas side, which is where I live to this day. 
And uh, first I was a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. And then I was a middle school principal grades five through eight. Uh, so I learned a ton. First of all, I learned a lot about the culture and the social networks here. Um, the school I worked at was, you know, 99% black, 85% were on free and reduced lunch, which is a federal measure of um, wealth and income. And so uh, it was it was that kind of environment and learning from the parents and the families as well as the students was an eye opener. As a principal, I really learned um, vision casting and culture building. So, so as an administrator, particularly as a principal, your main impact is not through direct teaching. It's through the teachers who teach and the staff and by setting the tone, uh, really by helping to establish identity and saying to students as well as teachers and families, this is who we are. These are the kinds of things we do. These are the kinds of things we don't do uh, based on our values and our character. So that those are lessons that just carry with you whatever endeavor you're you're, you're doing afterwards. Mm-hmm. And your your talk about vision casting got me thinking about something, and uh, I'm I'm just curious. Whenever it comes to like your work at the witness, whether it be with your employees or or the people who are part of the witness community, mm-hmm. what have you learned about like vision casting on something or vision casting for a future that? that hopefully it comes true in our lifetime, but it might not come true in our lifetime. What have you learned about like casting vision for something that might not, that you might not experience in your lifetime? Right. Well, I think civil rights leaders have set a great example of that. Um, certainly Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind. His entire, I have a dream phrase, you know, is vision casting. Yeah. You know, I have a dream that one day it might be true, dot, dot, dot. Um, but also his last speech that he ever gave, um, the mountaintop speech, as it's known, was on April 3rd, 1968 in Memphis, the day before he was assassinated. And he said, um, you know, I might I might not get there with you, but we as a people will reach the promised land. And it was just this soaring, prophetic uh, explication of where we're headed. But it was also a sober acknowledgement uh, on King's part that, you know, he, he might not see it. He might not live to see that day. And so, um, you know, applying that to things like the witness or our contemporary circumstances, we need dreamers. Um, it's what I call in um, how to fight racism. I, I'm borrowing from Walter Brueggemann and I call it prophetic imagination. So we have to be able to envision a reality that's different than the one now. Otherwise, we won't know what to work toward. Um, what to journey toward. And the way I put it is there's a sort of national and general application, but in terms of the church, I long for a day when any person of any race or ethnicity can walk into any Christian congregation and feel uh, a sense of family, feel a sense of home, and not feel a sense of exclusion, particularly based on their race or ethnicity or culture. Uh, and that's what we're moving toward. Mm, that's powerful. Well, one of one of the things that I think is just so it's so apparent. I mean, we've talked about it here in the conversation with your background, and even uh, it's if if people have read How to Fight Racism or even Color of Compromise is so apparent. Is you talk about the importance of understanding our history yes. whenever it comes, um, and. I'll say something and you can comment on too, I, which is important in race, but s- bigger than that as well, just I think our whole lives as well. Um, can you just talk about the importance of understanding our history whenever it comes to like family, like even county and state and national wide or even global history? Mm-hmm. History is um, about truth telling. History is about context. So when I went to seminary, we would spend all this time in our Bible study classes or theology classes looking at the context of Scripture, right? Is it Old Testament, New Testament? When was it written? Who was it written by? To whom was it written? All of these things that, that, that actually didn't, um, you know, analyze the verse itself yet because you needed to understand the context before you uh, verse or word you were studying. And it's the same thing 
with culture in our present situation. Uh, it's, uh, it's about understanding the times, right? Like the, the, the men of Issachar. And in order to understand our times, we've got to understand the context. And one of the things that historians often say, everything has a history. Everything has a history. And so I uh, mentioned before the, the killing of Mike Brown in this little you know, community I'd never heard of, Ferguson, Missouri. And as I'm trying to make sense of the situation as so many others were, I was wondering, you know, how do you get a predominantly black neighborhood like Ferguson being policed by a predominantly white police force? And then I found that historians often had the most hopeful things to say. They could come along and talk about the history of redlining. They could come along and talk about the origins of the police force and going back even, you know, a century and a half to the Civil War and seeing parallels to what we're dealing with in the present day was incredibly powerful. Um, you know, knowledge is power. And so in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's hugely vital and helpful. And then when you bring it down to the local context, you know, who is your county named after? There's, there's a Forest County near me. There's a Lee County near me. Those are after Confederate people. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi, where I went to school, is named after Andrew Jackson, is notorious for um, the, the Native American removal and Trail of Tears, the so-called. Um, all of that has a context. Who is your school named after? Is there an endowed chair at the college or university that's named after a racist? In the U.S. Capitol, there is statuary. Every state has two figures from their state that are represented somewhere in the Capitol. Uh, for the state of Mississippi is two notorious racists and segregationists. So all of that, I think, and then even our local church, right? Especially if your church has been around since, I would say, the 1970s and, and before, there's a racial history there. And if it's a white church, it's probably not all that positive. Uh, but you got to own up to it. you got to acknowledge it. It's part of your identity. It's shaping how you think and how you act, whether you know it or not. And so it is best to name it and to grapple with it and to try to learn from it. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of the, the things that you do or the practices that you have that help you get like a good picture of what the accurate history is? Because, you know, there, there's the saying that like, you know, the winners write, the, write history whenever it comes to it. And so uh, we can have, sometimes we can have a slanted view of history depending on who we're reading from. And so what are some practices? What are some things that help you gauge, hey, this is this is like an accurate portrayal of what really happened? Well, first of all, and I say this in the book, we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that there's any such thing as quote unquote objective history, um, objective storytelling. Everyone has an angle. Everyone has a point they're trying to make. Um, and you can look at the same facts and have two different people with two different sort of angles or biases. But that in and of itself is not bad. Um, we just have to understand where people are coming from, what the point is they're trying to prove, and they may be right. Um, so I don't think we should sort of uh, idolize this idea of objectivity, which actually doesn't exist. And there's a whole history there that actually is connected to race and whose scholarship counts and et cetera, et cetera. But um, what I do, one of the things that's helpful is studying uh, history by academic historians. So if you go into, you know, some of the few brick and mortar bookstores that are left, particularly the, the chains like a Barnes and Noble, um, fortunately, my books are there too. But you get a lot of other books there, especially in the history section. What you're going to find is a bunch of military history, a bunch of presidential history, and a bunch of history that's not written by historians. Uh, these might be television personalities or journalists or whatever. Um, and you want to talk about bias. A lot of these are, are promoting like American exceptionalism and just this glorified view of the nation's founding without giving due sort of attention to the injustices that this nation has perpetuated. So um, you want to be very cautious of those books. And you want to do things like just go to the website of like University Press of Mississippi uh, University of North Carolina Press, uh, Cambridge University Press, and, and, and click on their history sections. And then the challenge is going to be where do you want to start? Because uh, uh, this idea, I don't know, maybe it's like, it's, it's like medical doctors where like, 
um, you have the sense that because they have this particular degree or training, they know absolutely everything there is to know about this subject. But medical doctors specialize, you know, they're pediatricians, they're obstetricians or whatever. In a similar way, historians specialize too. So if you're going to ask me about European history, I'm not going to have much to say. If you're going to ask me even about first half U.S. history, I'm not going to have a whole ton to say. You know, historians specialize, you know, second half U.S., 20th century, social movement, whatever it might be. So um, in, in, in all that to say that the books are going to be, you know, a wide variety of topics regions, time periods. So I would say start local. Start with what's important to you. Uh, look at a, uh, start with a, a historical survey. So maybe it's a historical survey of the state you're in or the denomination you're in um, or something that's connected to you and then see what interests you and you can sort of um, narrow it down as far as topics and ideas. But, you know, a big part of that is is learning from academic historians. The other thing is, um, uh, going to primary sources. So so a big deal in, in the European Reformation was ad fontis, back to the sources, which meant back to the Greek and Hebrew and uh, Aramaic texts to translate the Bible for themselves. But um, in terms of historical study, you know, you can go back to the articles of secession for South Carolina and Mississippi and see how, how um, the Confederacy articulated the fact that they were they were seceding because they wanted to preserve slavery. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, so you can look at all these documents and in a digital age, they've never been more accessible. So so going to those primary sources and making sure you're hearing it straight from the historical actors themselves. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things uh, that I've noticed in uh, just conversations that I've had as it pertains to race or racism is that there sometimes tends to be a resistance towards how our history has impacted us mm-hmm. um, or how, how it has affected our context today. Yeah. And I would just love, like, any thoughts on maybe what contributes to that mentality of, hey, the past, the past is in the past? Right. Oh, it's a whole bunch of things. Um, one, we tend to live in a highly individualistic society um, that that doesn't, you know, each person is an island unto themselves. It's all about sort of personal actions and responsibilities without understanding how those are shaped by your broader community, which is really interesting because the Bible is communal in all its aspects, right? And when, you know, for instance, when Paul is writing New Testament epistles, he's writing to whole churches, whole communities, typically. Um, and, and, you know, even though it might be an issue with a smaller group of people, uh, he's understanding that, like, this is affecting the whole body and addressing it that way. So, so um, it's also interesting that in the Ten Commandments, the preface is, you know, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, all of these things. In other words, remember Yahweh. Remember what Yahweh has done for you. That, that idea of remembering is history. And that idea of history, um, recalling the history of God's goodness to us, is um, one of the bases for our obedience to God, right? And and that should emphasize to us the importance of remembering just in general. So, I mean, that's one aspect. The other aspect is, you know, the United States has done a phenomenally good job of forgetting history that white people prefer not to remember. <laughs> history that white people prefer not to remember because um, for black people, even though our history has been hidden from us, uh, we have to remember um, the, the, the kind of challenges, the oppression, honestly, that we faced in order to try to overcome it in the present day. Now, that's not our whole story, but that's a big reason why we have such good memories. Mm-hmm. Um, but white folks, particularly white people in power, prefer not to remember their complicity with the heinousness of racism and white supremacy. And just to illustrate the point, there has been this massive controversy over the 1619 project. And that is um, a historical project and a literary project really uh, headed up by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a black woman and an investigative reporter. And she just had this thesis, you know, what if we took 1619, which was uh, when 20 and odd Negroes were brought to the coast of colonial Virginia and is widely sort of looked at as um, things to race based chattel slavery. If we took 1619, 
as the founding year of the nation instead of something like 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, which is characterized as this sort of noble throwing off the shackles of Britain to, to become, you know, an independent United States. What if, you know, the nation's true origin has much more to do with racism, white supremacy, race-based chattel slavery than many people would like to admit? And there was such a backlash and outcry. I mean, you, even to this day, you have state legislators uh, proposing bills to prohibit and forbid the teaching of the 1619 Project um, in my own state of Arkansas, it was also attached to funding that if you got, quote unquote, caught teaching this, you could be penalized uh, by, by losing some of your state funding for school. Um, and I think that backlash and that reaction is part of um, a vigorous effort to remember an imagined past that is much more triumphal. Yeah, there was slavery, there was racism, but we're over that now. Or that was just, you know, part a much smaller part of the story, and, and the bigger story is democracy, liberty for all, all of that stuff. We got to get over that, and we got to tell the truth to do it. Yeah, one quote that you have uh, that you quote someone in the book is from William Faulkner, and you know he said, "The past is never dead; it's not even the past." And just, I would just love just your your thoughts of what that means to you. Right, right. I mean, um, iterations or, or, or that sentiment has been expressed um, in many ways by many people. But uh, I also include a, a quote from, from James Baldwin in there to, to that effect. But um, it's simply the idea that we are, we, we are vessels of the past. We are vessels of the past in that we carry it within us, consciously or not. It is there. So whatever you, your perspective on race is right now, this moment as you're listening, that's been shaped by your parents who were shaped by their parents, who were shaped by their parents. And so that narrative, that historical narrative matters. Um, how we get to the point, a lot of conversation as we record this, you know, Texas has a massive winter storm and power outages because they weren't prepared. There's a lot of conversation about the history of the privatization of public goods like electricity, where it goes into the hands of corporations who are concerned about the bottom line and really a very small group of, you know, sort of an owner class uh, who are concerned about the bottom line want to deregulate everything so they can kind of do whatever they need to do to make more money. And then when a natural disaster like this comes along, uh, because everybody's sort of been paying attention to the bottom line and not really about the public good, well, then everyone suffers, right? Now, you know, whatever you think of that particular instance or not, the point being, um, what we're experiencing now, what we're going through now, you could take anti-black police brutality, has a very long history connected to what the purpose of police forces originally were, which is tied to controlling recently freed um, enslaved people. So I just like, and now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it in terms of how the past affects the present. And all you got to do, you don't have to take my word for it, study some history, whatever topic you want. We do this in theology, right? If you got some, you know, white listeners who are like, I'm my own person, I'm not responsible for whatever came before. Okay, fine. But you don't look that way at theology. Oh, you'll be all over those historical theology books, won't you? This person wrote this. This person wrote back to that person. This branch of theology is from this genealogical strand. You want to know how you got to, how you arrived at your present beliefs. And so you follow the breadcrumbs of history back to the sources. Well, why can't we do the same thing about race? That's good. One, one thing that uh, well, I was going to say one thing. There's a lot of things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, but particularly with, with your background in history, I did want to ask, whenever, what are some, some major moments that have happened in black history that unless you're familiar with it, you just don't know? Like, uh, you know, uh, like the Great Migration or Black Wall Street. Is, is there anything else or any other major moments or historical events like that? 
Oh, there's so many because we're just so historically illiterate. <laughs> but uh, a, a couple I'll mention, you know, 1619 and mm-hmm. understanding the significance of uh, the growth and advent of race-based chattel slavery, particularly how Christians propped it up. I mean, you got missionaries and so-called Christian plantation owners that are figuring out ways to perpetuate race-based chattel slavery, even as they're calling on the name of Christ. Um, a, 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 the Civil War, unfortunately, is still very misunderstood because there are all kinds of myths and narratives, including something called the Lost Cause, which pretty much just romanticizes the antebellum South. Slaves were Enslaved people were happy. Plantation owners were benevolent. You had the occasional hiccup. But that was the exception, not the rule, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so even an understanding of the causes of the Civil War, which I outline in uh, The Color of Compromise in the chapter on the Civil War, I give um, five causes. And one of them is the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which says that um, even if an enslaved person escaped a plantation in the South and, and made their way north, Basically, any white person could recapture them, uh, even in a northern state. And it effectively deputized the white population to police black bodies. And oftentimes, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> even people who, who, who were born free, if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time across the wrong person, you could be accused of being an escaped slave and uh, sold down the river, as they say. Mm-hmm. So the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, a hugely um, under-examined period by the sort of general populace is the Reconstruction period, and what immediately followed was redemption, mm-hmm. which is chillingly named because redemption should be good news, but in this case it meant uh, taking back the South for white people. Um, so, so, so studying that period, 1865 to 1877, is redemption, and then the period immediately after, or, or is, is reconstruction rather, and then the period immediately after was called redemption, and you get um, things like the Ku Klux Klan and lynching and the rise of Jim Crow. Um, and then, lastly, like the civil rights movement, we have this very romantic, rosy picture of the movement that you know centers on Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Act, and that's pretty much it. But there's so much more to know from the different organizations involved, you know, how SNCC, um, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, differed from the SCLC, uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Martin Luther King Jr. started, um, how different individuals like Ella Baker differed from, you know, uh, uh, leaders of the NAACP or the SCLC. Uh, There's a lot more that goes into it. So you really can't go wrong um, wherever you want to start. Yeah, and kind of a a similar vein of thought, but I wanted to ask, who are some of the historical figures in black history that are important? Because, and the thing that got me, I don't know if you've had a chance to see it, is the the new movie Judas and the Black Messiah with Fred Hampton. Yeah, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I just wanted, that just got me thinking of like, who who are the Fred Hamptons that unless you're familiar with it, you don't know about? Right, right. Well, again, you know, I think we often think we know more than we do, even with recognizable names. So, so you know, read Frederick Douglass' autobiography. He actually wrote several, but um, or there's a new biography um, written by David Blight, B-L-I-G-H-T. It's massive. It's a doorstopper, but it is fantastic. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, for sure. Um, Harriet Tubman, there's the movie out, Harriet. Um Fannie Lou Hamer is one of my historical heroes. She was born and raised in the Delta as a poor sharecropper, became in her 40s a national civil rights activist, uh, particularly for uh, voting rights and um, relief of the poor, both black and white people. And um, Coretta Scott King, any women of the movement, uh, many Helen Burroughs, you know, you could just go on and on and on. Mary McLeod Bethune, and all of these folks are are most of these folks are um, people of faith, are Christians. Mm-hmm. So, and and then you mentioned Fred Hampton. You know, just the sort of Black Power movement in general has been demonized as being violent and militant and all of this stuff. And when you look at what they're responding to, things like anti-Black police brutality, um, absentee landlords who 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 uh, Permit poor black people and things like that. When you look at what they're protesting, the 
would be enraged. And then the FBI surveillance that went into undermining these freedom movements. Oof, it's an ugly history, and it's not so far away. Mm-hmm. What's what's a question, or maybe a couple of questions, about you know Black history, racism, you know r- racial reconciliation that people don't tend to ask that you wish more people would ask. Um, who are black people when it's not simply in relation to white people? Mm. So a lot of times we only study black people and our opposition to racism and white supremacy. That's a huge part of it. I mean, the reason why we have a group called quote unquote black people is because of racism and white supremacy. Um, but we have made our own culture, (laughs) you know, we have made our own institutions. And so sort of studying like the black church on its own terms. As we speak this week, um, a, a new documentary series called uh, The Black Church on PBS came out, right? And, and, and there's a lot to it, and there's a lot I could say about it, mostly that, you know, it was a four-hour-long series, and we need about 16 hours just to start. But <laughs> it is a start, and, and what I appreciate about it is it takes the black church on its own terms, you know? It studies it as an entity, unto itself, so to speak, and not just as part of a, a, a larger, quote-unquote, more important story of white people. So how do we do that in all segments? You know, how do we study the history of black people in sports or entertainment or entrepreneurship um, or black intellectual thought? You know, looking at Du Bois, looking at Douglas, um, looking at um, Ella Baker for their intellectual contributions, Angela Davis, you know, all of these figures and take them uh, uh, take us as a people as existing not solely in relation to white people. One one thing that I wanted to make sure that I asked you about or gave you a chance to talk about is just the role that love plays in this conversation. Because I'll I'll just say, I'm uh, on, on the white side of the conversation. I don't hear that word a whole lot. And so I would just love your thoughts of how love just plays into just this whole conversation. Well, again, going back to the black church and broadly the black Christian tradition, I think we have demonstrated love in action in a lot of ways. So for one, the fact that there haven't been more violent rebellions and uprisings on the part of black people because the treatment that we've endured, the victimization that we've gone through certainly warrants retaliation. Uh, But, you know, in part due to our Christian faith, we haven't done that. Um, And I think that's an expression of love that, you know, we want truth, we want confession, we want repentance, we want repair, but we don't want revenge. Hmm. We're not out for vengeance, um, by and large. And that is a miracle of God, considering what we've gone through, what we've been put through. Um, that's an expression of love, forgiving people and, and still being in relationship with white people is an act of love. And then uh, I say this in the book, How to Fight Racism, but um, it's, it's drawing off of Cornell West, a, a, a theologian and, and speaker. And he says, uh, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. And so to the degree that black people have sought justice, that's an expression of love in public. So whether that is pushing for voting rights, um, equal employment, um, uh, desegregation, criminal justice reform, whatever that might be, that too is an expression of love. So even if we don't hear that, those four letters, right, are people acting in loving ways and what does that look like and what are all the ways that we can love God and love neighbor Mm -hmm. through what we do and not simply what we say, and I think if you look, especially historically, at the black church tradition, you see a lot of expressions of love. That's powerful. One one final question that I wanted to ask you about is um, just the role that uh, being a follower of Jesus and why it's so important for us not only to talk about things such as racial reconciliation and justice, but just what you were saying, to live it out into action. Can you just speak to that, how it relates and how, I'll just say, and you can correct me or not, if it's particularly important for followers of Jesus for us to do this. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's, it's first of all, all over the Bible and all up in Scripture that, you know, God has God's eye on the sparrow, on the little one, on the one tossed about by the storms of life, right? Um, that God has God's eye on the poor, on the marginalized, on the oppressed. When God speaks to or of leaders, rulers, wealthy people, people with power, is to call them to account and to call them to a higher standard. Uh, to treat people well, where Jesus summed up the law in, you know, love God, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, that's pretty comprehensive <laughs> for how you approach politics, how you approach race and, and racial justice, all those kinds of things. The problem is so many people have been so invested in the culture and not Christ that they're confusing the two. Um, that they think following the culture, which could be anything from the Republican Party is the quote-unquote Christian party or the only Christian way to vote. It could be that immigrants, certain immigrants, I should say, uh, brown-skinned immigrants from you know the, the southern border um, in particular are a threat. It could be that you know, uh, the United States is God's chosen people and God's chosen nation, the city on the hill, instead of the actual church united by the Holy Spirit. All of those things are a capitulation to culture and not um, a following of Christ. So we really have to um, extricate ourselves from that syncretism, really this blending of the holy and the profane and calling it holy. Uh, that's what's holding a lot of folks back. And we can learn a lot from the church on the margins, whether uh, folks from Latin America or Asian American descendants or Native American descendants or Black Americans, or most particularly the global church, which um, is often uh, comprised of people who are not in positions of, of social, political, or economic power. We got a lot to learn from the rest of the body when it comes to love and it is incumbent incumbent upon us as christians because we are all part of the body of christ mm -hmm. well jamar i know that people are going to want to pick up the book how to fight racism i feel like we just barely scratched the surface it's it's such a practical book too which is what i which i love it's easy yes. to pick up stuff and right. just start immediately if people want to pick up the book and follow you and your work at the witness where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things uh, probably the, the easiest place is, um, jamartisby.com. But I also recently started a newsletter that I'd love for folks to uh, subscribe to. And that is jamartisby.substack.com, jamartisby.substack.com. And the last thing I'll mention, we are doing, uh, an online book study of how to fight racism. It's on Facebook. So go to facebook.com slash groups slash htfr community how to fight racism htfr community facebook.com slash groups slash htfr community we've got study book study questions we've got um discussion guides we've got a reading uh outline we've got exclusive videos and i hop on there every week um to do a facebook live just for members of the group and that stuff is going to be up there so no matter when you join the group, it's going to be available. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for just doing the work personally and just creating this because I know it's going to help so many people. Absolutely. Hey, it was great to, to have a conversation with you and I hope we can do it again. I absolutely love learning from Jamar. And as I've uh, mentioned a couple of times throughout the podcast, his work has um, shaped me a lot. And as I've tried to continue to learn and grow as it, uh, as it pertains to just understanding our country's racial history and, and racism and different aspects of that and how it intersects with the church and, um, and everything as well. And so if you enjoyed this conversation with Jamar, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any future episodes is by subscribing on whatever podcast player you're using, whether that be Stitcher or if you're on Spotify, hit the follow button as well. And feel free to leave a rating and write a review of the podcast as well. That helps a lot also. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast and you have something that you've been wanting to learn about that, uh, that maybe you don't feel like 
you know who you could talk with about this, I would love to hear from you about some potential things that you would love to learn about. And so the best way to hit me up is on Instagram. My handle's at Caleb J. Mason. And my DMs are open, so you can just go ahead and DM me. I would love to hear from you. Or uh, if something really stood out to the episode, just go ahead and reach out to me on that as well. And I think that's going to be it for today. So thanks again to Garrett and Sam for helping make the podcast awesome. Thanks to Jamar for being on the Learner's Corner as well and just for the work that you're doing. And yeah, thank you for listening to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.